This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, well, welcome to UCSB's Distinguished Lecture Series Spring 2014. This is our final speaker of the lecture series, and we are ending it with a bang. We have a true Renaissance man with us tonight. And when I'm done giving you some context, you will agree with me. Um, I don't throw that term around lightly. Miles is a Renaissance man. He is currently the co-founder and CEO of Worksteady. Worksteady is really changing the way the medical profession um, finds uh, contractors and, work and, way, and the way medical contractors find um, jobs. Right now, the, I guess the last century methodology was you would go to a temp agency, you would sign up with a temp agency, and that temp agency would try to find you a position. There was a middleman, in other words. Miles and his team are disaggregating the middleman. There's more money can be made by the employee who's, make, who's working hard, and the companies are not having to pay that premium to the staffing agency. So it's good for everyone. And we'll talk a little bit more about work study. Miles is also the, formerly the co-founder and CEO of Equal, which was a digital marketing company that was acquired by Everyday Health back in 2012. He co-created in that capacity and, and co-created and was the executive producer of the world's first web series. I'm going to say it again. He created the world's first web series. We take it for granted, right? There's thousands of YouTube stars. There's thousands of web series. Every 12-year-old has their own little you know, dip web series. But this was the first one. And what, what I marvel about with Miles, and we've talked about it, is everybody was staring at their computer screens at the same time he and his co-founders were. And everyone was trying to figure out what to do with YouTube. Um, and what Miles and his team did was a breakout. And it completely changed the industry. And really, it was the basis about, about, upon which many, many fortunes were made. He created a, a series called Lonely Girl 15, as well as uh, Kate Modern. Kate Modern became the first web series that was produced using a social network. Um, it was also the first web series that, that crossed over into network TV, which was another milestone. So Miles is a doctor, a former plastic surgery resident, um, a very creative thinker, successful entrepreneur, and a business innovator. His creations have been seen and touched, uh, he's touched the lives of tens of millions of people all around the world, and he's launched uh, new industries in the process. I looked at it today. Lonely Girl 15, as of today, has over 128,000 YouTube subscribers. I think most YouTube stars would be kind of happy with that number. Um, and, it's, and the videos have been viewed more than 288 million times, so nearly 300 million views of those videos. When you throw in Kate Modern and another series that Miles was involved with called Harper's Globe, they each had about 2 million, so throw another 4 million on top of the, 100, uh, the, the um, 300, um, excuse me, the 288 million, you have almost 300 million views. Unbelievable. Renaissance man. This is some guy that did something on YouTube. He did that, and he also got his BS in neuroscience from the University of um, California, Berkeley, his MD from University of San Diego, uh, where he completed an internship in integrated plastic surgery at Loma Linda Hospital. Um, that wasn't enough. He went on to the National Institute of Health as a Howard Hughes Medical Research Scholar um, and did a, a fellowship in tissue engineering research. So Miles gets bored easily. Be enough for most people just to do that, right? Like, okay. Now, while he was going to medical school, he also found time to co-found and edit and co-edit The Pulse, 
which was a newsletter, as well as The Inhuman Condition, which was an undergraduate comedy um, newsletter. When he was at UC Berkeley, he was also the design editor and staff writer for the humor magazine there called The Heuristic Squelch. So again, a person that's just never sort of satisfied doing um, what they're supposed to be doing. He wants to do that and spend 20 other plates at the same time. Miles is definitely a fixture in the LA tech community, um, very active angel advisor and investor. He worked with Launchpad LA, which is where we first crossed paths. Cross paths. Um, as an expert on entrepreneurship, the integration of entertainment and technology, Miles has spoken all over the world, literally, Australia, Europe, Canada, and all over North America. I am extremely honored that he's here speaking with us today. Let's show him our appreciation. Now that I've used up almost all of the time with the introduction, we have no time for questions. No, so what I want to do, how many of you have seen a Lonely Girl 15 um, video? Out of the 288 million, you've seen it. How many of you, before you looked at Miles' bio, had never heard of Lonely Girl? Had never heard of it. So the rest of you had heard of it, but you just hadn't seen an episode yet. All right, well, we're going to look at the first episode ever um, and we're going to talk a little bit, because I think some of you don't quite understand what, what happened and how the whole thing was rolled out. It was, an amazing, it was amazingly well done. We're going to look at the first episode, uh, and then we're going to look at um, a later one, and you can see what it evolved to. So let's go to the first one. Hi, guys. Um, so this is my first video blog. Um, I've been watching for a while, and I really like a lot of you guys on here. Um, I really like pay to the order of 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 two. You or she, you're really funny, and um, your videos are always really interesting. You seem really nice. Um, and then there's the wine cone or wine just wine cone. I'm not sure. Um, you are totally retarded, but I like it. Well, I guess a video blog is about me. My name is Bree. I'm 16. Um, I don't really want to tell you where I live because you could like stalk me. Or... Yeah. Oh, well, what you need to know about my town is that it's really boring. Like, really boring. Really, really boring. Um, that's probably why I spend so much time on my computer. I'm a dork. <laughs> um, I didn't really have a plan for this video blog, but hmm, I guess I'll just do this. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that. Okay, I, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, um, bye. And so much space. All right, so now we're going to watch what it evolved to. Look, that even had almost 5 million views. Yep. Head downtown, man. Are you, are, you, are you guys sure that that's him? I think it is. Oh, Go! Just hang on, everybody. I'm going to get us out of this. Jeez. Still there? I can't see. Is he still there? Yes, he's still, still there. there. I can't get rid of this yeah. guy. Where are you going? Do you know where you're going? I don't know where I'm going. I'm heading down. Okay, you know what? Freaking out is not going to help the situation, so can we
not losing him. He's right there. Oh, oh my God. Hang on. Hey, you're doing good, man. Keep it going. Keep it going. Oh. He's getting Don't really worry. close. Right? Oh. Hang on, everyone. Stand one down. Hang on. Oh. And they all die. The end. That's great. Miles wrote that part. <laughs> so that must be weird for you to watch that after all these years. Because <laughs> I'm sure you don't sit at home going, I wonder what's happening with Lonely Girl. No, I haven't watched it in a long time. It's so, very weird. I've got a good, so I've got a good joke for you. We'll start with a joke. What, what happens when a lawyer, a doctor, and a screenwriter walk into a bar? <laughs> yeah, out comes Lonely Girl 50. Right. So yeah. tell us that story. I mean, that, those were the founders of the company. It was a, a lawyer, a doctor, and a screenwriter. Um, and again, YouTube was the Wild West. Yeah. In the wildest sense. How did we, how did you get to that point? Um, it's funny. It's also weird hearing you say my bio up there. I don't like sit there thinking about all the things I've done um, in like one sequence. It sounds very... And you're 24. Uh, yeah, no, I wish. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I just, um, you know, I love producing videos. So I, I had always loved making short films in college and in medical school taught myself how to edit and was like, you know, obsessed with Final Cut. And then I also love the internet. I was at, as you, as you mentioned, I was at Berkeley from 95 to 99, so during the first dot-com. And um, that's what I loved. And, you know, I enjoyed, I love science and I like doing research, but when I got into medical school, I really didn't like that much. And so when I left, I was, you know, really not 100% sure what I was going to do, but I knew that I love producing videos and I love the internet and it was, was 2005 and I saw that there was, to me it was obvious that it was the right time for video online because broadband was at like 60% penetration in the US at the time. You could finally like actually watch videos and because of Flash, everybody could actually see videos in their browser. There was right. a technology that was working. Um, and so for me, like, it, it just came out of like a personal obsession with watching videos on YouTube and thinking like, well, how could I use this to tell a story? So, you know, look at your background, being a researcher, medical researcher. Was it, I don't want to lead the witness, but was it like you were just trying to solve this really interesting problem that everyone was trying to solve? If you go back and read the articles for that time period, sort of all of them were saying, what's going to happen? What's YouTube going to become? Is it ever going to compete with traditional media, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. So we all were asking those questions, but then you answered them. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was simpler than that. I mean, to be honest, it was just that... I, I love telling stories. I mean, I think actually a lot of company building, too, is telling stories. Yeah. Like, the pitch is a story, and, you're, and, and, I, and I love telling stories. And I didn't have any access to Hollywood. I mean, frankly, like I, even though I grew up in L.A., like, you know, nobody that I knew worked in the film business. And, and, and to me, I just saw this as, oh, my God, this is like my chance. This is, this is like, rather, I don't need to be discovered. I don't need to get some agent. Right. I don't need to like, get some studio exec to approve you know, my idea for a movie. I can just upload videos to YouTube. And, and I really, you know, the thought that I had to myself was, um, if I can't write better episodes of video blogs <laughs> than a 14-year-old kid right. that I don't deserve to be producing videos and I don't deserve to be making movies and maybe I should actually like go back to this doctor thing or figure something else out. Right. Um, 
So honestly, it was as simple as that, um, really. And, and then in terms of the approach, I, I mean, we were, we were fortunate in that, you know, I think each of us had enough experience with the traditional industry to have an edge over the people that at the time were producing content on YouTube. But we weren't established enough in the industry to like look down upon it right. or poo-poo right. it right. or be too fixed in our ways. Right. So, so to That's us, the innovator's dilemma. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. And honestly, like it's still this way. Yep. Less so than it used to be. But for years, you know, I would speak on panels or talk to studio executives, and they would harp endlessly on like the quality of yeah. the content. Did you see the lighting in that first yeah. video? It was horrible. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And they literally, I'd be sitting next to guys that like, you know, ran studios. They'd be like, oh, yeah, the quality of our content is amazing. And we just launched this new digital studio. And we have high-def cameras. And I'm sitting there, and I would say it on panels. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, right. it's irrelevant. Now, if the script sucks, that matters. Right. If the actor is terrible, that matters. But nobody on YouTube cares about lighting, and nobody cares about HD. Right. Now it's a little bit different, but then it was completely irrelevant. Yep. It's, even, it's, still, not, it's, it's, still, it's still not the most important thing. Absolutely not. Right. We've seen a lot of really bad high-def movies, right? Yeah. And even 3D movies. Yeah. Um, so, again, I'm going to take a, a question from the audience after this one. So if somebody wants to grab their microphone, go ahead and get it. Just to make sure that all of you sort of understand what happened between those two videos, major, major stuff happened. Okay, so the first video was uploaded, and you could get the impression that it was a person in their bedroom, 16-year-old girl, just doing a video blog, which was kind of common back then. This is the MySpace era, if you guys remember that. A lot of pictures in the mirror and, and, and videos like that. <laughs> But and that was in June of 2006. By August, or uh, yeah, by August of 2006, you had a lot of heat on you. You had the New York Times, Business Week, LA Times, and a lot of other kind of high-powered media outlets trying yeah. to figure out whether that was real or not. And you know, this whole thing about is that it was fake? Like the you could still go back and read these articles. She's a fake. No, she's not. You know, all of her fans yeah. were telling her, you know, that she wasn't a fake. Um, and when, another thing I thought that you guys did just extraordinarily well, you were young, you were new to this industry, you really got in front of that issue, mm. um, and I think capitalized on it. And that could have been the end of it, right? Yeah. That could have been, okay, well, whatever. But you took that controversy, I don't think you exploited it, but you built upon it. You want to talk a little bit about how you got in front of that, how you handled it? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, and, and for some context for those that don't know, so, you know, when we started producing the videos on YouTube, you know, we, we planned it out pretty methodically in the sense that, you know, we, Mesh and I, who is the screenwriter, we wrote a treatment for the entire, like, Lonely Girls series up, we both basically wrote enough narrative that got the series through, like, September. So if you watch the videos through around the September period, we, we pre-wrote every single major plot point of, of, that, in, of that entire arc. Um, and we had, you know, started writing some of the initial videos, but then we were actually writing videos in real time. And in the beginning, you know, people didn't know whether it was real or whether it was being produced. And there was a lot of controversy. There was, you know, the search for Lonely Girl or the hunt for Lonely Girl. Um, and so our biggest fear was, because again, back in 06, like we didn't, number one, we didn't even know if people wanted to watch scripted, serialized, right. short-form content on YouTube. No one was doing it. And then the second thing that we weren't sure of was, well, you know, right now it's sort of this like mystery and a little bit of a hoax and like are people just going to see this as like some stupid hoax and we trick them and then they're going to be pissed at us because right. they feel like we lied to them. Right. Um, and you know, for us, this was like our one shot. Like, um, 
I love rap music, so I was super into Eminem at the time, and I was like, that that song that he does about lose, you know, lose yourself in the moment, and this is your one shot. <laughs> like that was definitely like we were thinking about that, and we were like, oh my god, like how are we going to make sure that we don't screw this up? And so our approach was, I mean, honestly, I think this actually this became a mantra for us as we ended up building what became a digital marketing company and social media was it was all about authenticity and like. You know, we never actually lied to anyone. And we just put the content out there. It looked real. It felt real. We never said, um, this is fake. But we never said that this is real. And, and, you know, as we had more and more inbound press attention, we never wrote back to a journalist and lied to them. Now, we would either ignore them or we would write back in character. We would say, like, oh, I'm glad you like my videos. That's really cool. My friend Daniel helped me, whatever. Um, so when we actually did come out and do you know, a bunch of press, and I mean, we had so much inbound press, right. and I didn't even know what a publicist was. We had to hire a publicist to like, defend us uh, you know, and organize the press, and we created like, a press junket. It was crazy. Um, and we basically just said that, and we said, look, like, we thought this was really cool, and we produced something that we thought people would enjoy, and this is a story. And so that, and that was like kind of our talking points that we kind of came up with was, all right, you know, we never lied. We created something that we thought was awesome, and people enjoy it, and it's not ending. And that was an important mm-hmm. component, too, yep. was yep. keep watching it. Like, there's still a story. There is still a mystery. And we hope that you'll continue and watch it and enjoy the ride. Yep. And, and happily, they did. And yep. actually, our biggest viewership was in spring of 07. Oh, okay. That was, and, that was when the, the, the peak. And it really broke in that September, October. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was about like it was like six months after it broke, wow. and, it, and people found out that this is actually a, a produced show. It, the numbers were still climbing, and we like hit our peak in, in the spring, and then it was kind of a slow decline. But what's kind of funny though, because you think about like the OC or something, nobody goes up in arms about that. It's like it's yeah. totally scripted. Yeah, yeah. They act like it isn't. I mean, like, does anybody really not think that thing is scripted? So yeah, I mean, all of reality TV. I mean, the good thing was that like we had that to fall back on too. Right. I mean, it was definitely um, and reality TV had been around for a bit, but like. I think there was an element of us capturing that zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And this was before, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Cloverfield, the J.J. Abrams film, but this was before that. And that whole handheld like uh, cinematography movement, it was starting to emerge a bit. Um, yeah, so like I think Blair Witch had happened. Yeah, Blair Witch had happened. Yeah, and obviously, like, I was a huge, like, I was super into Blair Witch when that came out. Yep. That was real, though. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Just like Lonely Girl. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, where do we have our first question right here? Yeah, right over here. Uh, thanks for taking my question. I've got a double barreled one, so sorry, but. So, the first question I got for you is when you started these videos, was your plan to get big or was it just to have fun or was it some sort of business plan? And then the second question is when you finally did get big and receive this widespread recognition, um, like when did that happen and how did you start changing how you made the videos or how you thought about this project? Uh, Honestly, like it was all three. We did it for all three reasons. I mean, for me, producing videos is fun. And like when we first started doing it, I co-wrote every episode with Mesh, and I like writing, and that was fun. I edited every video myself. I love editing. Um, you know, if I was an entrepreneur, being an editor would be pretty cool. Like I, I liked it, um, and I co-directed every episode. So doing it, the actual act of producing videos was really fun. Um, I definitely wanted it to get big, like 100%. You know, I when I had the idea, and the initial idea was really simple. The initial idea was just. 
you know, what if I created a video blogger on YouTube, and what if something weird was going on in their life that like created some element of tension in the in the, the minds of the viewers? Um, very Blair Witchy. Um, and I definitely like woke up and like you know wrote the idea down. And then the next day, as I was thinking about, it, I was like, oh, this could be huge. We could be in magazines. That would be incredible. And it was. And then that led to the final piece, which was. Yeah, there was an element of maybe there could be a business here. In hindsight, you know, I knew nothing about business. It was actually a terrible thing to start as a business. Um, and I didn't really know where it would lead, but it was some combination of all of those. Um, and then to your second question about how did things change, um, I mean, it was a combination of stuff. It was, it was interesting. It was... Um, I've, I don't know who said it, but I've, I've, I, you know, there's this saying that, uh, so well, some people have said, better to be rich than to be famous. Um, and there's definitely an element of that. It's like, true. Like, you know, we had a lot of fame for a, for a brief window of time across kind of the world, really. I mean, there were international news channels covering it. It was crazy. Yep. And then for a long period of time, we had fame within the industry, certainly. Um, and that was cool and kind of fun, but like, more it was a distraction and we weren't making any money off of it initially. So really our, our approach was like uh, how do we number one, not continue to go deeply into debt onto our credit cards which is what we were doing um, as the show became more expensive to produce because we had to, as you saw, increase production values and keep people entertained. Uh, and then number two, how do we more than that actually make money and turn this into a business and that changed a lot. I mean, we changed, there's a whole bunch of things. We changed the way we produce the content to make it cheaper to produce and be more predictable in terms of the quality of the product. Yep. We changed, we started introducing advertisers, et cetera. So there were a bunch of things that we did. So, so speaking of the advertisers and trying to monetize it, so, so um, you had the chewing gum and you had Neutrogena. Yeah. Was there, like, were there meetings where people, were, was there consternation where some people were like, dude, we're selling out? Or was everybody saying, no, let's do it? <laughs> Neutrogena's um, got a check for us. Honestly, no. We were all like on board. We, we were. I mean, we were. Greg and I were both like probably fifty grand in debt on our credit cards. Oh, I mean, right. it was pretty terrible. And we had raised like a little bit of angel money from this producer, but like we had no clear business model. And frankly, in hindsight, no business raising money. Uh, but you know, he was into it. Um, and we were just like desperate to. Um, to have some revenue come in. So to be honest, like we were all thrilled, and you know, base, most of the actors were pretty thrilled too. Like by and large, everybody oh, was like on board. I did. Um, were they just yeah. classic product placement type things with like the icebreakers gum and stuff, or did you actually work them into the? We tried to make it a little script. more creative. Yeah, we worked them into the script. So yeah. we called it we called it product integration, oh. which like. You know, it used to be called product placement, then product integration, and now like you know, brand marketing or content marketing or whatever. It's all the same. Thing. Yep. We we were doing a more creative form of it. Yep. Yeah. If you ever see a brand in a in a movie, somebody got paid. Yeah. That's just not an accident. They're not drinking a Pepsi with a label perfectly centered on Unless accident. It's Apple. Apple never pays for product placement. Ah. But a lot of times they'll cover they're it. They're one of the few that has the luxury. But they'll put a pair there they just will. to piss them off. They will just right? to piss them off yeah, because they won't pay. They didn't pay. <laughs> they didn't pay. That's what that pair means. Yeah. So unlike, unlike the, a lot of the early YouTube hits, the folks just didn't know what they had. They couldn't really monetize it. They couldn't turn it into anything. You guys did create a business, um, LG15, which later became equal. And you took VC money. So, yeah. so I'm wondering, and you've taken VC money for Worksteady, how did those two experiences differ? Different times, different places, different types of businesses. But can you compare how the fundraising process was different? Yeah, I mean, I feel like <clears throat> Lonely Girl and Equal was 
it was always something that we were like trying to reverse engineer at, at every stage. Like to your question earlier, like when we first wrote Lonely Girl, it was intended to be like roughly a three month plot arc and then end. And then we had an idea for a feature film mm. that was going to, because the, the, there's a plot point in Lonely Girl where she runs away from home. And in the original treatment that we wrote, she was going to run away from home and then get captured by the police who are part of this cult that's kind of the central bad guy of the show. And then she's going to vanish from YouTube and everyone's going to be freaked out, where did this girl from YouTube go? And then we're going to release a movie that's like the story of a bunch of fans on YouTube going to find this girl. That was the original idea. Uh-huh. So then when it became really popular, we decided, oh my God, we have like lightning in a bottle. We can't get rid of her. <laughs> Let's keep doing this. We can't get rid of her. What are we, we're going to make money online. And so we had to literally do this thing called retro continuity, where we basically went back and watched every episode and uh. everything we had ever done, and then rewrote it so that it became part of this larger concept and a universe, yep. so we could do the spinoffs that we did. None of that was planned. So that was a huge pain in the ass. And then, um, later on, as it became more of a business concept, we had to figure out, all right, well, like, what is the business here? And, and so at each stage of the game, it was really hard. Yeah. And, and honestly, we raised money, and it was like at a time when the market was crazy, and in hindsight, the valuation was too high. Um, we can talk a bit about that if people are curious in fundraising valuations and, and things like that. Um, and we were just kind of figuring out how to do things. Now, it's completely different. Yeah. Like, I've you know, been an advisor, I've been an investor, like I understand how VC works, I understand the types of businesses that make sense for VC and the types that don't. Mm-hmm. And, with, and you know, obviously like I have a, a win under my belt having sold a company, so that makes the conversations easier. But I think the whole approach is just completely different. Yep. Um, just different. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know because I was involved in that process when Miles was raising money. And for, for me, it's, um, you know, you can look at Lonely Girl, and I'll take the, the next question after, after my next question. So get your, your mic ready. Um, for me, I was just impressed with what you did with that property. <clears throat> I mean, it's one thing to get lightning in a bottle, and it's another thing that's let the bottle blow up in your hands. Yeah. You actually created something of it of value, which you then transitioned and sold. And, um, and so anyway, that was impressive to me. So, so you guys need to keep that in mind, too. Even though you might be doing a, what you consider a small project or a side project, the company I mentioned earlier that was sold um, to Intuit, their original, for, for $30 million, their original company was Dog Toys. You know, very mundane, very pedestrian, but they built that into a legitimate business. And while some people saw them taking orders for their dog toys, the idea came up for Lettuce, which became the company that they sold. So, it, you know, it's all about just getting in there, getting in the game and starting to learn and then seeing, um, you know, where the ball ends up bouncing. Yeah, it's constantly iterative. Yeah, absolutely. It, if you're on the sidelines, forget it. You'll be in your mom's basin. Yeah, you, know, you have to just 25 do. years from now. Yeah, and I'm definitely, I think that my personality is such that. I'm sort of split between being a little bit, being introspective and um, like, you know, thoughtful and a little bit cerebral, but then also obviously like I, you know, get things done. Um, and there is no doubt that like if you, in order to build a successful business, you have to just get things done. You just have to do stuff because the reality is you can think, you can think a lot, but you're never going to know for sure until you actually try it. Right. Yeah. And then you're going to figure it out yeah, if, you're, yeah. if you're motivated and intelligent and willing right. to work. Yeah. You, 
Exactly. So talking a little bit more about um, the raising of venture capital, I always say that when you, that investors are like family. You can't divorce them, yes. right? You can, unfortunately, you can get divorced to your husband or wife, but it's hard to divorce your brother. You guys actually sort of worked something out where you bought your investors out. Do, I don't yeah. know, do you want to talk a little bit about that or just maybe some cautionary tales to uh, the folks here about making sure that your, um, your goals are aligned with your investors' goals? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, like I was saying, I mean, first, I think we raised at a relatively high valuation at a peak of a market, and then the market collapsed, which right. I, I think made the situation very challenging. Um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, I think that you have to be really honest with yourself about whether your business makes sense for venture investment. And I think that was the thing that we really didn't understand. And, you know, you can pitch a company and you can make it sort of sound like it might fit. And if a market's really hot, you can raise money. And certainly now it's, I think, less so on the, the Series A level, but certainly like at the angel level or a seed investor level, like everybody's an angel investor these days, you can probably raise a few hundred K if you're a little bit connected to people with money and you have a good idea. Um, but you can actually get yourself into you know, difficult conversations and difficult situations right. if, if it really doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that for me, and I think this is a different thing for this business, like, you know, I understand how venture capital works. Like, not perfectly. I haven't been a VC myself, but I have enough friends who are, and, you know, I sit on a, boards of companies. So um, I have a feel for the economics and the dynamics of the way venture funds work and how they need to perform from a financial standpoint mm -hmm. in terms of the returns to their investors. And as a result, there's types of businesses that they look for. And the bottom line is that you need to have something that can grow relatively quickly, you know, in a three to seven year-ish period, and that needs to be scalable, which basically means that you can generate ultimately large profit margins and have low costs and that you can get there pretty quickly. And, yep. and technology businesses, not, you know, many different types of companies can be startups, but tech companies tend to fit that mold really well. Right, right, which is why they attract so much venture capital. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Um, and, yeah. and, and you guys need to really understand the dynamics of venture capital as well. If you take that money, it's, it could be some of the most expensive money, it could also be the most impactful money. Yeah. Um, almost every large tech company took venture capital at one time or another. But you know, what's, what surprises students sometimes is venture capitalists have investors too, we yeah. have to go back and report to. So it's it's uh, it's not just somebody writing a check out of their own checking account. Yeah. All right, we'll take another student question. Um, so you spoke about how sometimes you want to be introspective, you're inclined to be introspective, but when you start a company, you just have to get things done. Can you talk about a time when you've wanted to reflect and think, but then you had to overcome that and just execute? I, I, every day. <laughs> I mean, honestly, my natural inclination is, and my wife like always teases, like I will just read. I could just read all day long, books, blogs, I read voraciously. And left to my own devices, I would probably just sit and read. So what I've done is I basically, you know, the part of me that wants to build businesses and likes seeing the results and is excited by the outcomes, right. I basically enforce that upon myself. So I have a pretty elaborate like task management system. So like I'm addicted to Evernote. I I basically write notes from pretty much every single meeting that I go to. You know, I tell somebody when I sit down, don't, you know, don't I'm not sending email like I'm just taking some notes. If it's going to be too awkward and I can't, I'll like you know just remember a couple points in my head and write it down like immediately after the meeting. Mm -hmm. Evernote's great because I have it like on my phone. I have it everywhere, um, and then it has like you know tick boxes for to dos, and I've created my own structure. And honestly, like it's 
you know, I don't know if other people have better ways, but I just force myself to do it. And every day, I make sure that I'm running through, like, what are the key things that I need to make sure to get done today? Um, and I don't know. I, I think that... I think that if you really ask people and they speak honestly, most of them will tell you that there are certain things that they just don't like doing. Yep. And, and, and the only way to get your, you know, and usually if you're procrastinating, the things that you procrastinate on, at least me, are the things that I don't really want to do or that aren't like my favorite things and I'm not maybe as good at them or whatever. Um, and those are the things where I intentionally like say, nope, you get like, got to do it. Let's get yep. it done. Get it done today. It doesn't matter. Even if that's not going to be like quite the right decision or you know you're going to have to undo it later and you don't have enough information, tough, just do it. Yep. No, I think that's, that's often the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is the successful people do the things they don't really want to do necessarily, yeah. but they know it needs to get done. Yeah, there's always some part of anything that you will not like yeah. that you have to do in order to achieve some outcome. Yep. And then hopefully if you're successful, you can hire people to do some yeah, things. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Like <laughs> I did that over time. Yeah, over time, I definitely. And, I've, yeah, and you learn also that like... Uh, not, and then there are some things, too, that like you like doing, but you're not so good at. Right. And those are the ones right. that you're like, more dangerous, where it's like, right. oh, actually, you know what? I probably should hire somebody else to take care of it. Yeah, <laughs> founderitis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you put your medical training on hold. I'm sure your family was super excited about that, uh, right? Yeah, that was. Yeah, I'm sure that was an easy, <laughs> easy conversation. Yeah. <laughs> they so, were actually my first investors in Lonely Girl, and they did very well. Totally, oh, good, so good, good. It became easier. That took the pain out of it, right? <laughs> yeah. But talk a little bit. About, I think that's interesting for students, because I know I get the number of students come to my office hours, and they say, you know, I'm graduating in two weeks and I hate what I do and I hate my degree or whatever. And all is not lost. Um, you don't, you're not uh, shackled to that forever. But it might be interesting for them to hear a little bit about that decision process you went through. How did you do it? And, you know, how did you handle it with your parents? You know, any, any insights you can share with, with the folks out here that might be in a similar situation? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, like, um, I definitely had a lot of parental pressure to be a doctor, for sure. Um, I loved science, I loved uh, neuroscience, I loved you know, doing research, right. but you know, I, you know, my little limited experience in hospitals growing up, I didn't like, probably should have been a sign. Uh, when I got into medical school, I did not like it, like, right off the bat. I'm more of... You're writing comedy for newsletters. Yeah, and, like, I'm a problem solver. Like, I'm, I'm good at solving problems. I like solving problems. I like physics. I like math. I hated OCHEM. Also should have been a sign. Like, when you get to med school, it's all memorization. I hate memorizing. Like, I'm not good at it. Plus, like, the programmer entrepreneur in me. Like, I was the guy in med school where everybody was studying for the exam, and I was like, no, I'm going to build an Excel spreadsheet and have my friend who knows how to write macros in Excel write a macro so that I can create a flashcard program, because then I don't have to sit at the coffee shop and memorize, and I can do it, like, way faster. Yep. And then, like, the week before the test, I was like... I've been spending all my time building this flashcard program, uh, which actually is kind of cool. Um, but I haven't actually learned how the adrenal system works, and I need to now like, really quickly cram. You should have sold that system to you. I know. Like, I, I thought about that. I was actually like, man, maybe I should do this as a company. Honestly, for me, it wasn't easy. Like, they you know, wanted me to be a doctor, and I felt like there was some family obligation to do that. Um, uh, I like one of my close friends who's my board member was my COO is Indian and he literally jokes that my parents are more Indian than his parents um, and more pressure on me and my family. it's pretty funny um, uh, anyway funny now yeah um, so 
Yeah. I, 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 so there was tell, no, there's no good answer. Tell Honestly, us about I the think break, you have to do what you love. But I haven't yeah. actually heard this. So what was the break point? So NIH. It was, I mean, dude, it was my surgery. You were like a fellow at NIH. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. So but, but what, for me, that did was. Did you wake like, up crying? Like, what was it? No, it was. I was really unhappy. I was very unhappy. Yeah. My, my, during my surgery internship, I was not happy. You're botching surgeries. Well, and... I mean, I actually, I, no, I was actually very good. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I do have a lot of wrinkles. We should talk yeah. afterwards. Well, that's the thing that I was saying. Like, I was actually good at being a, a doctor. Like, I, I got into an incredibly competitive integrated plastic surgery residency. Yeah. And, but I didn't like it. And I think that's another trap, too, where, like, there, there might be something that you're, like, really good at, but you don't like it. And, and I, I just kind of, like, reached a breaking point. Like, I was, I was not happy in the program. I was sleep-deprived. You know, surgery internship is very brutal. And technically, there was, like, an 80-hour work week that was being enforced. That, I mean, which is crazy. But, like, that wasn't even being enforced. And I was working, like, 90 to 120 hours a week. Whoa. No exaggeration. Um, I was getting, like, at, like, on average, four hours of sleep a night. It was crazy. Um, and, and, I, and I don't do well with sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, so I, I just, I, it was an emotional decision, to be honest. It was definitely not like, oh, well, you know, I think I'm going to quit. And it was more like, I just can't do this. Like, this is not for me. And, and I don't know what other options are out there. I had not been exposed to business very much. Right. Um, my parents didn't have that network of connections. And it was definitely, you know, a lot of the blogs that talk about like, you know, starting a company, it's like jumping on a cl- off a cliff and assembling a plane on I the way I down. Is that you? Or like, uh, I think uh, uh, Sean Parker said it's like eating glass or something. Anyway, <laughs> um, I think some of that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Definitely for me, I felt that way. I don't feel that way now, but I did for that first, it felt like a jump. So, I mean, my only advice would be that it was, while it might be scary, um, and while you may not know for sure what that path looks like, because there's so many other paths right. that look so clear, um, it was absolutely the best decision I ever made. And, and you will learn more than you have ever learned. And, and there is no better time to start a company and fail, frankly, than right out of college, because you're not married and you don't have kids and you don't have obligations and like you can totally like do something and have it completely bomb and no one will care right. at all. Um, and you will only learn from that. Yep. Yeah. I think whenever you're sitting there thinking, there's no way I can quit, that's when you should pause and go, that was the sign, I'm quitting. Because I've seen it with people, they go 20 years in a career that sucks, they hate it, but they felt like, I can't quit. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many people that after they've quit, there's a painful period, no doubt about it, there's a pain, you went through it, but then you look back at yourself and you think, why the hell did I wait so long? That's insane. And I should say that both my dad and my aunt actually said a couple things that helped me in the process when I was really unhappy in internship. my aunt, who has a finance background, um, it's funny, I didn't know this. She introduced me to the concept of a sunk cost, oh. okay, which obviously I'm very familiar with now. Um, and she was like, oh, it's a sunk cost. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she said, well, you know, you've already spent the time. You've already spent the money. You wasted your life. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I'm so, oh, so you say that I wasted my life. You've already spent it all. So, like, you, you can't focus on right, that. It's right. done. You have to decide right now what do you want to do going forward. That's right. And then, and my dad said, "Oh, well, you know, he was in a, a PhD program in English at UCLA, and he got he quit. He got his master's degree, but he quit the program. And he said, "Why well, quit? You can quit." Um, and it's funny because I had never really 
thought about that. Yeah, they gave you permission. Yeah, they gave me permission. Yeah, yeah definitely. Huge, huge. Which is huge. Do that with your kids. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's how I think about it. So. Um, all right, we'll get the next question queued up. So 395 Lonely Girl videos, we have 388 million views, etc. You know, and all this time has passed. Are you satisfied with the way it was resolved as a story, as an arc? Or were you just so damn sick of it you wanted to kill her? Or kind of how did that end for you? Uh, uh, no, I'm not satisfied. I don't think any. Right, right. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think any artist or founder is ever satisfied. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I always feel like something could be done better. Um, like when you watch that first video, do you remember like oh, she screwed that up or she shouldn't oh, have said yeah. that or? Yeah, I look at like every cut and I'm like, ah, oh, that was a little bit off or oh, the lighting wasn't quite right. We never could get the lighting right because we didn't have proper lighting equipment um, and the sound sucks. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Um, How would you have wound it down differently or what would you have done? Um, Obviously you didn't have unlimited money, so. Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to do more with the franchise. I mean, it was, it was. Well, you had a DVD plan. Yeah, or? we did. We were never, it's, it's interesting. And this is, you know, you were talking earlier about venture capital and like, you know, Lonely Girl was really cool creatively um, and really fun to produce. And actually we made decent money off of it. And I think that as we were figuring out the model, um, especially because basically we took <clears throat> the Lonely Girl video production model and we applied it to doing productions for brands. Mm -hmm. And actually, that was very profitable. I mean, we had really good um, gross margins on that. So I think that there would have been a way for us to make Lonely Girl a profitable endeavor. But we were really early. And in and of itself, as its own thing, like the YouTube ad revenue was really not ramping up. Yep, yep. And then the economy crashed and we couldn't get any brand deals. It was just... Well, YouTube wasn't even showing ads on videos back then, right? No. I mean, we were able to get some. We had some guaranteed revenue coming in, so we were able to get some money. And then they started showing, but it was, like, paltry. Well, um, do you think it would have been, do you think, it's hard to know, right? But do you think it would have morphed into a multi-channel network, like a machinima or yeah, a maker? I, th or? I think it could have. Because you mean, had an anchor tenant. Like, yeah, you had a yeah. great brand. Yeah. And, and honestly, at Equal, we talked about launching an MCN. It wasn't going to be a Lonely Girl MCN. But see, by then, Lonely Girl had already declined in the right. viewership. And it is, I could go on a whole tangent, but just scripted dramas in general. If you look at like any TV scripted drama, for the most part, they have a big spike in the beginning, and then they go down over time. Some cable dramas are different if people discover them later, and then mm. they can have more of a ramp up. But right. you, know, you run out of ideas. Like yeah. There's only so much that the characters can do or that... Um, so yeah, you know, there's more that I wanted to do with it. It's funny, I actually uh, bought back Lonely Girl 15 oh. uh, from, the, from Everyday Health, mm -hmm. uh, the company that acquired us, um, just because... I was curious as to what happened. Yeah. Like, who owns those so videos now? now. <laughs> You're getting all that ad revenue. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a little bit, but um, I just did it because it was an emotional thing. Sure. And I was like, look, like, there's, there are still fans out there that like, tweet about it, and we took the website down, and I kind of wanted to put it back up and preserve it. So, yeah, I don't know if there's anything to do with it, but I just kind of wanted to yep. like, kind of preserve it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot that we could have done, but you know, it saw its time. So do you, you just weren't satisfied with the spinoffs? The just audience wasn't there? Or? No, the spinoffs were great. I, it was... Uh, it's a, it was a money thing, but you know it saw its time. So do you, you just weren't satisfied with the spinoffs? The just audience wasn't there. Or? No, the spinoffs were great. I, it was uh, it's a, it was a money thing. Like uh. you know, there was only so much that we could do with it, given the current environment, the environment at the time around ad revenue. And if the economy had not crashed, we could have kept getting product integrations, and I think we could have continued to keep that brand going. But 
you know, by that point, we had raised venture capital. We were thinking more as business people, and we it was clear to us that there just really wasn't a business there, yeah, frankly. Yeah. And, and we had an opportunity with Paula Dean to run all of her digital, and then with Alicia Silverstone, and then ultimately you know, Jennifer Lopez and Lauren Conrad. And we were like, oh my god, there's... That's money. Yeah, there's an opportunity for us to build a real business by building out these celebrity networks. Yeah. And that was the company that we ended up selling. Right, really, right. that was the business. Exactly. So what happened to the cast? Did they go on to... To legitimate acting careers, or what? What ended up happening? Do you ever done, talk to those folks? Oh or? yeah, yeah. I keep in touch. I mean, they've done a ton of different things. Actually, Jessica just moved back to New Zealand, so she like uh, I don't know if she's married or she's like in a, moved back with her boyfriend. Uh, she acted for a bit and then kind of got sick of it. Yusuf, uh, who played Daniel, is still like super active. He a acts camera in, guy. Uh, yeah, he was the guy who filmed everything. <laughs> yeah, um, he's super involved. He produces uh, independent films and stuff and. There's actually a lot of people. It's funny. There's so many people. Lonely Girl is like, uh, oh, I don't know if it's maybe it's the days of our lives of like you know yeah. the internet. Like there was so many people involved in it over yeah. the years. Right. Like there was a guy that wrote for Lonely Girl that like um, uh, I think he's one of that. He was one of the head writers for the show White Collar. There's a Lonely Girl writer who wrote for Gossip Girl for a long time. Mm. There's like Lonely Girl actors that are on different shows. Like it's well, it's total street stuff. cred in that yeah. business. It's like yeah, yeah no, I was there. Yeah. You were at Lonely Girl. Yeah. Oh no, no, I was there. And it's hard for you guys to imagine. I just started teaching. It was in my first quarter, and this um, you know 22 year old woman burst into the room. She was so excited, and she goes, "I just found out Lonely Girl's not real." And I was like, <laughs> "What the hell is Lonely Girl?" Right? So she told me the whole story. That's funny. Yeah, but seriously, it was gonna room like this and she was animated about it and yeah. kind of mad but yeah. kind of like you it you know just like whatever so I would hope we looked it up and so interesting watching the reaction like you not only was Lonely Girl a popular web series but it was definitely like one of the first social media phenomenons yeah. and you see all this happen you see this happen so frequently now with you know Twitter in particular but Facebook too with these memes that are floating around and it's it's uh, it's almost like you can see the aggregated emotional response of the world, and and them kind of going through. It. And with Lonely Girl, it was like that. Like, it, you know, there were different responses, but the aggregate was like everyone was really upset, and you know, crying. I mean, there were there were kids that were crying. They were upset that that this person they thought was their friend wasn't their friend. <laughs> it, seriously, it was it was crazy. And then there were people. And then after that, those same people, that girl, I remember watching a video of a girl that was like, like loved this, the character as like her friend. And then, then she posted it, she was like, oh, you know, I've thought about it more, and I've decided that I still really like it, and I want to keep watching it. Um, and then people actually kept interacting with the show as if it was real. And, and, and to me, that was, I mean, actually getting chills, as I say. Like, that was really cool. Like, it was, for me as a writer, mm-hmm. Very emotionally satisfying, um, and 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 then them continuing interacting with the show is really cool. So, um, do we have the we have one question in the front? This will be the last one for the class. Hi. Obviously, you've done a lot with your life, and jeez, you know, uh, quite an impressive resume there. Um, how did you integrate doing all that with your responsibilities towards your wife and kids and everything? How did you balance all that? Because it seems like just one of those things. For a mere mortal is a full-time job, so. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I didn't, but I don't know if that is the uh, right model to follow. So I recently got married. I got married in December. Uh, my wife and I have been together for about th- almost three years now, and we don't have kids. So 
You know, I will say this. I don't have personal experience uh, juggling family, because I don't have kids right now, you know, with this new company. Um, but even, you know, being married, it's challenging. Um, it's funny, though. I will say this. I, I, feel like, I feel like I work a lot more efficiently now. Um, and as I said, I'm a bit cerebral. I, you know, if left to my own devices, will procrastinate a little bit. You know, having a great relationship and being excited about, you know, a weekend and hanging out with friends or spending time with Jamie, like, to me, um, it makes me more efficient and effective. And I, and I definitely... I think when I was younger, I was like, you know, Steve Jobs was like one of my heroes. And I think I gravitated a little bit more towards the biographies that you read of like the, you know, three divorces or they have no social life and all they do is work CEOs. And I think, I think that that's kind of BS, frankly. Like if you look into it, there are plenty of people who have started companies and built businesses, you know, um, after they have families. Um, and 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 or even before that, who 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 were able to maintain some sort of balance. Now that being said, starting a company and building a business is different than having a job where you you know you check in nine to five. It, it is different. Um, but I'm I'm finding that you can balance the two. It just requires a lot more organization mm-hmm. and being a lot more efficient. And you know what? You you know I, I'm good at that too. And I think that that's something that that you know, all of us can kind of learn to do. Well, I think judgment, too, of knowing what really needs to get done yeah, that's now. Because what what yeah. when you're young, you have no judgment. You think everything's important and has to be done tomorrow. Yeah. But, but you know, we've had two speakers this quarter that I can think of. They both have been married 50 years. Yeah. They both were incredibly successful. Yeah. But they were able to turn it off when they went home, and yeah. they had a reason to go home, so yeah. they didn't stay at work all night. Yeah. They weren't kind of hiding from something that yeah. they didn't want to address. That's so, right, yeah. yeah. So you can do it. You know, it's, don't just don't have the three divorces and yeah. work 80 hours. No, and I, and I make that conscious decision. I definitely you know, make the decision, all right, like I'm not going to be checking my phone obsessively right. every single second during dinner yep. um, like I did you know, in the early days of Lonely Girl in the yeah. company. I leave my phone in the car if we go out to dinner because yeah. it's just like why force myself to yeah. fight, fight the urge. Yeah. And I think it does, honestly, I do truly, at least for me and my personality, I'm better because of it. Um, I think there's a tendency as a first-time founder, you know, is you feel like I need to be in control. I mean, yeah. most founders are inherently control freaks. And, and you kind of muck about in everybody's business. <laughs> like, really early on, that's okay, but... Actually, even then, and pretty soon, you need to let people like do their thing. And if you're going to hire people like with you know work steady, our team is awesome, and they are so much better at doing what they do in each right. of their roles than <laughs> I am. And you know, with the first business, it wasn't really like that. Now, part of that, it was harder to attract people and get them to work with us. But but even so, I think that there's an element of your own personality where if you're of the mind like I want to empower people and I want to get the best people, um, you can't micromanage them. And I, and I think that that's actually more compatible with having a balanced life. 
Well, you have to be secure too, which you I do. think comes yeah. with age, comes with experience, yep. and you have to you have to really understand what you're good at and what you're not good at, and you have to be comfortable giving up things yes. that you're not good at. Yeah. So let's talk about let's end on team. Last question yeah. on because um, one thing we look for as investors is we love serially successful teams. That so tells us a lot of things, um, and one thing it tells us is the, the the person that's founding this new company must be a pretty darn good person to work with if people are willing to follow him or her to this new venture. And you're no exception to that. A number of people from Equal are working with you now. What, and it's not all good. You don't want exactly the 100% of the same team. You want new chemistry, you want new blood. Can you talk a little bit about what you look for in teammates? How do you vet them? And how has that process worked where you, you were in a very different industry doing something very different and now you brought many of the same people over? Yeah. Um, I, well, so here's what I'd say. I think that, um, it, first of all, it depends a lot on the stage of the business. So the types of people that you found a company with, uh, who are your co-founders, um, and then the people that are the early team are different than the people when yes. you have 30 people at the company team yep. and are different than the people at 100 people at the company team. And I imagine beyond that, it's different too. Mm -hmm. We got to a little under 100 employees when we sold the company. So I don't have experience beyond that, but you know, talking to people that I know who run companies that have been bigger, I know that there's kind of an, at least one or two more inflection points. Yeah. Sure. Um, so speaking for the early stage, because it's probably most useful for you guys and what I'm doing now, um, you know, the people that you found the company with, number one, you have to trust them like, like no questions asked. Um, and they have to trust you. Um, and you want to work with people that complement your skill set. There can be some overlap, and there probably needs to be at least a little because usually you're bouncing things between each other. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you really want them to bring whatever skills you know you don't have. Um, so you know our team, like I'm, you know I used to program a little bit, but I'm really not an engineer. So I need to have like co-founder who is has an engineer background. Um, you know, I can do product and design work. I actually did the initial product and design work for Worksteady, but I immediately knew, okay, our <laughs> old head of product at Equal right. was amazing and like transformed our product. That was the product that I had originally designed. It made it a million times better. So I'm gonna get him in as soon as humanly possible and he can, should fix and change all this stuff that I did to just kind of get it going. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Paras, who was uh, the COO of Equal and one of our board members, and I've known since high school and went to college with him. Um, he is, you know, a board member at Worksteady and has been very helpful throughout the process. Um, yeah, you want like you want people. It, it's funny, like these these stupid platitudes are very true. Like you want people that you want to be in the trenches with. Yeah. Like it is that war analogy. There's some truth to it, mm -hmm. and there's going to be a lot of hard decisions and a lot of late nights and a lot of uncertainty. Um, so you need people that you trust, that are hardworking, that are team players. You know, you can't have people that are, you know, they, you have to have some self-interest, a healthy amount, but like they need to be about the team and the team group first. effort. Team yeah. first, they have to be team first. Um, and that to some degree are utility players, um, but that have that complementary dynamic. Um, and, and honestly, it is a very personal uh, decision mm -hmm. because you, as the you know first founder and CEO, leader, whatever you want to call yourself, um, your weaknesses, and you have to have a lot of insight to know those, are the things that you're going to want your co-founders to be best at. Yep. 
not just generally speaking, but for this specific task um, and for this specific business. And then for the early executives, it's pretty similar. They tend to be, you tend to look for people that have a little bit more of a narrow focus because at that point you're starting to differentiate and say, oh, I need a guy who's like awesome at sales. And, um, and then ultimately, um, everybody needs to be a doer. Mm-hmm. Like, right. And they have to be comfortable just like getting stuff done. Um, and it's, it's funny, you know, the types of people that are, the best co-founders or the best um, you know, early stage team at a company usually are not the people that are the best later stage people nope. or the guys that have the, you know, uh, or gals that have the best pedigree and come from like some big company. Sometimes they are, and you don't want to hold that against them if they're a senior executive. Yep. But they need to be that. You know, Pars is a perfect example. So Pars, you know, uh, he worked at Hambrick and Quist, which was like a hotshot um, investment bank in the 90s that was acquired by, I think, J.P. Morgan, I think, one of the big, one of the big banks. Um, and then he got a JD MBA from uh, Northwestern. And then he was at McKinsey for like five years as, and became an engagement manager there. And, you know, he was like a corporate guy. Mm-hmm. But we were friends. We knew each other. And I also knew that Pars is also a person who's been running a family business for a long time. And, like, they own a lot of apartment buildings. And he's totally comfortable getting his hands dirty. Yep. And, and so you need those people that in the early stages who will have no problem literally, like, carrying chairs around the office. Right. Because... Sometimes, I mean, like, you know, I still, like, I'm like, all right, I'll go get the food. Like, I, I don't, like, I don't, I have no qualms about doing anything and everything at any given moment that needs to be done to move this company forward, because right. that's all that matters. But it's leading by example, too. Totally, I yeah. remember one time I was washing, literally washing dishes oh, yeah. in the sink as, yeah. after lunch, and yeah. several people commented on that. I'm like, look, I do this at home. Why can't I do this at work? Totally. And then those dishes were clean for the next two months. Like, nobody left a bunch of dirty dishes in there anymore. But leading it's, by example, they're thinking, you know, they see it, they see it, and then that's modeling that behavior for them to follow. It's funny that you say that. Literally, so I... There was a joke at the office at Equal that like I always always wash the dishes because <laughs> nobody else would, <laughs> and, and we actually created a contest at the company that was um, uh, basically it was like uh, I don't know if you remember the show from ages ago, Win Ben Stein's Money. Yeah. So there was that game show where it was like allegedly his money, and like if you answer the questions right, you'd get his money. So it was like um, basically uh, uh, we're all going to compete to wash dishes. And I am going to wash the most dishes, but if you can wash more dishes than me, you get like a $20 Amazon gift card. And the rule was, if there was um, any number of dishes in the sink, it didn't matter, you had to wash the entire thing of dishes to get one star. Because we were trying to construct it in a way so that the sink was always clean. It was like a little bit of a gamification thing. And it worked like a charm. You like wash one cup and get oh a star. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there were like people in the in the office that would like fight with each other to wash the dishes, and I'm like, oh my god, this is awesome. <laughs> um, and I would fight with them too because I was like, well, actually, I wouldn't mind that gift card. <laughs> that would be I that, gave it away. That could be your next business. Yeah, right? maybe. Yeah. We talked about that. <laughs> the dishwashing game. Yes, there are there are always. I, I I wish I could clone myself because there are always more opportunities, and that's kind of why I like the mentorship stuff. But with all that research, I wouldn't be surprised if I find out that later that you do come clone yourself. <laughs> no, no, maybe someone else. There's great advances there. <laughs> not, I'm not going to be the one to do it. <laughs> well, thanks again so much. I really, really appreciate yep. you taking the time. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.